0: For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. We talk about overflow, and typically we don't think of overflow as a a good thing. Um, You're in a restaurant, you're sitting down, and they begin to fill your, your cup up. And they don't stop. Well, there's spillage and there's a big mess. That's not a good overflow. Think about in 2010 when Jessica and I were still living in Nashville and we had the historic flooding of the Cumberland River and all the creeks around rivers. I'll tell you all in Texas what rivers are. Uh, we, had, we, <laughs> we had rivers and, and these things called creeks. And, and uh, the water rose and just a couple, I mean, couple miles from where we lived, uh, in entire shopping centers and houses and, and neighborhoods were just demolished and destroyed. Uh, it was not a good overflow. In Florida, where we've also lived, although not on the coast, uh, nevertheless, we experienced hurricanes and storm surges from the ocean and all kinds of stuff. So it, overflow, flooding, not typically a good thing. Unless we're talking about Grace. And when we come to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, we see the, really the only one use of the word that most of our translations have as overflow, at least in the ESV, it's overflow. We have the only one use of that in the entire New Testament. And it is about the overflow of God's grace. We don't want our drinks or our creeks or our oceans to overflow, but when it comes to the grace and mercy of God... Oh, give us more and more and more because we need it more and more. To cover us, to tear down what is sinful in us and to fill it with his goodness. Don't you want that today? Don't you want his grace and his mercy overflowing for you today? Paul knew his need of it. and Paul was thankful to know it. We're reminded of what Paul said in chapter 1, verse 3, when he gave Timothy this charge. This charge to warn these false teachers not to spread their lies anymore. And now we see the reason for that charge. Not just to protect the truth. Not just to protect the gospel. But so that God's people will remember God's grace And that as we sail this course to heaven, we will steer clear of the rocks and the ditches that are on either side and stay the course by God's amazing, divine grace. Oh, how often we are in danger of forgetting why God's grace is so amazing. How in danger we are every day of taking it for granted, taking advantage of it in sinful ways of sinning more that grace may abound, of forgetting what God has done for us in Jesus, and living our lives from day to day as if none of it mattered. Paul wanted to remind young Timothy about this, and maybe we need a reminder of it today as well. Look in 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare holding faith with a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Number one today in verses 12 through 14, we see an outpouring of grace. I want you to remember today, believers, who you were. Who you were and what you were apart from Christ. True. In Jesus this morning, if you are in Christ, all things have been made new. The old is gone, the past is gone. 2 Corinthians 5:17. Behold, anyone who is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Our sins are forgotten. And so I'm not asking you this morning to dwell on the past. Or to bring up the past again, what you were and who you were. I'm asking you to remember it so that in remembering it, you may recall the grace and the mercy of Jesus for you. Sometimes in remembering who we were and recalling what we were before Christ, it makes us stand afresh in the amazing glory of his grace for us now. Do you remember where you were? Do you remember who you were? Do you remember what you were doing? Do you remember maybe today what you could be? Who you could be even now apart from Jesus? I'm glad that Jesus makes us new and cleanses us. But I'm also glad to remember and to know where he brought us from. Paul now recounts where God brought him from, and he chalks it up to one thing God's grace. Timothy, you need God's grace. Church, we need God's grace. Matt needs God's grace. In verse 12, Paul reminds us where it all comes from, for him and for us. Look at how he begins I thank him. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord. If Paul could just sum that up in a phrase, it's all from him. I thank Jesus who has done this. I thank Jesus who has given me strength. Most of our versions read this way. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. It might be a better read to read it this way. I thank Jesus Christ my Lord, who, having strengthened me, has considered me faithful to serve him. It's a good reading, isn't it? I thank Jesus, who, already having strengthened me, considered me faithful to his service. Paul knows that, in and of himself, he is not trustworthy, he is not faithful. He is not worthy to be considered to the service of Jesus in anything. That's why he begins, I thank Jesus who has strengthened me to do this. I thank Jesus who has given me the strength to be considered worthy of him. Jesus has all the ability. Jesus has all the power. Jesus is the one who gives the call. Paul knows that. Paul remembers what was going on back in our Bibles, Acts chapter 9, as he was actively persecuting and pursuing Christians and killing Christians and imprisoning Christians and persecuting the Lord Jesus. Paul knows it didn't come from him. Paul knows the strength and the power and the faithfulness and the call did not come from him. Why? Because he remembers who he was, where he was, and what he was doing when Jesus found him. And he follows up in verse 13, though formerly, he remembers, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Some high religious language here, let's just talk about what it means. A blasphemer is one who speaks slanderously or insultingly about God. For Paul, he was denying that Jesus was the Messiah. He was denying that Jesus was the Christ, and so he was speaking slanderously against God because in his mind, God did not send Jesus, and Jesus was not the Savior, and there was no salvation from sin in him. And so Paul says, yeah, I ridiculed God, I insulted his people, I was a blasphemer. Furthermore, I was a persecutor. Not only did I hold these opinions in my head and my heart, but I literally, the word means to pursue and to hunt down Christians. In Acts chapter 8, verse 3, that's exactly what we read. After Stephen was martyred, Paul was ravaging the church, going from house to house, torturing, capturing, arresting, imprisoning Christians for following Jesus ravaging the church, as hunting down, pursuing, and persecuting them. He says, I was an insolent opponent. This is one Greek word that just means a violent, insulting man. In Acts chapter 9, verse 1, right before Paul is converted, it says, while he was still breathing threats against the church. Breathing insults, violence, ravaging Christians, and persecuting Christ. Paul says, that's who I was formerly. He remembers who he was, what he was, what he was doing. That Paul also remembers something else. He remembers that even as he was breathing threats against Christians, He remembers that even when he was not looking for Jesus and he was not seeking Jesus. In fact, he was persecuting Jesus. Even when he was in that state of affairs, Jesus came looking for him. And Jesus knocked him to the ground. And Jesus shined the light of his grace so bright that it blinded him. But here's the paradox of all this. Even in his blindness, he was now able to see. And Jesus called him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he called him into his service. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul remembers where he was, who he was, and what he was. When Jesus came for him. Do you remember this morning when that light switch went off for you? It Might have been a moment. It might have been a day. Many of us remember vacation Bible school and I'm sure many decisions for Jesus in this room today were at vacation Bible school or at summer camp or on a missions trip or in a church service like this when the light switch went off. Maybe it was a season of time in which you remember being lost and unbelieving and then found yourself trusting Christ and believing in him. Do you remember when the light switch went off for you? When you were not looking for God, when you were not seeking God, when you did not care one lick about God. And then, boom, Jesus showed up, shined his light, knocked you to the ground, and showed you who he was and called you to himself. In the mess you were in, listen, in the mess you could be in today, the light of God's truth erupted in your mind, and in your heart. And Paul says, as could we all if we know Jesus, oh, but mercy overflowed for me. Grace overflowed for me. I received mercy. That word is pity, compassion. And in this context, it literally refers to God's covenant loyalty. We talked a few weeks ago in Ephesians 1 about God choosing us from eternity past And now we see that covenant loyalty, what he had chosen to do for you from all eternity past. Now you have received it by God's mercy. Verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. God's covenant loyalty moved him to pour out his grace on you. And with the outpouring of his grace came what? Faith and love. The ESV renders this grace overflowed. Many of your translations might say surpassingly increased. That's not a bad translation, it means the same thing. If something is increasing to the point of surpassing, guess what it's doing? It's overflowing. And Paul says, this is how God's grace was for me. He poured it out, not just a little, not just enough for me to be able to do the rest. He didn't wait for me to respond to then do the rest for me. No, God's grace was poured and poured and poured and poured until it surpassingly increased and overflowed over the side of the vessel. He poured it out, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. This enemy of God, this opponent of God, given God's mercy, God's grace, God's forgiveness. Paul says it's all from him. I thank him, Christ Jesus our Lord. I want to say to you today that if you've never been blown off your feet by the grace of God, I actually want to ask you if you think that you've ever understood grace for real. If you've never been overcome with a knowledge of your sinfulness and then a knowledge of God's grace for you in Christ. I want to challenge you with a question and ask you, do you think you really know God's grace in Christ? There's a new gospel, which Paul would say, and I agree, is not really a gospel at all. But there's a new gospel surfacing amongst even what we call evangelical Christians. And this new gospel, in a nutshell, sounds something like this. You are good enough. You are worthy. You are great just as you are. I heard a lady, popular Christian author, woman, on a podcast one time say that she finally came to an understanding of the gospel. You know what her understanding of the gospel was? That I am worthy and that I am good enough. Brothers and sisters, that is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. The biblical gospel, listen, is that you are not worthy. The biblical gospel is that you are not just fine by yourself. The biblical gospel is that you are not good enough. But the good news of the biblical gospel Is that while you're not good enough, and while you are not worthy, and while you are an enemy, and a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and opponent, God stepped in anyway. That's the biblical gospel. That God stepped in to your junk, flipped on the light switch, cleaned out the cobwebs, took up residence by his Holy Spirit, that it was God who strengthened you. God who gave you mercy. God who gave you grace. Listen to this. God who gave you faith. God who gave you repentance in Christ. Do you know this morning, listen to this, do you know this grace in Christ today? Have you come to Jesus in faith? Trusting on him? While laying aside your sin and your self righteousness and your own efforts to do it by yourself, have you come to Jesus in faith, repenting of all that stuff? Believers, this morning, when's the last time? I asked this a few weeks ago when's the last time you simply said, Thank you? When's the last time you woke up in the morning, believer, or just going through your day or in a worship service like this as we sing these songs about God's wonderful, amazing grace and you just slung your head back and you said, thank you for saving me. When's the last time, believer, you remembered who you were and what you were and what you were doing and what you could be except for Jesus? When's the last time you remembered, as Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15 10 by the grace of God I am what I am it's all because of Jesus I thank him who gave me strength I thank him who considered me worthy I thank him who showered his mercy and grace on me Number two, an example of grace. One of the most cherished verses in all the Bible, and for good reason, verse 15. Paul says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This is one of five, quote, trustworthy sayings or faithful sayings of Paul. Paul. In other words, in his letters, there are five times when he says a phrase like this or something similar. This is a trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance. This is a faithful saying. There's five times. and Scholars disagree over to what Paul is trying to do. But it seems, at the very least, as if he's just trying to draw our attention to something important. Just as Jesus might have said, behold, or verily, verily, amen, amen, I tell you. Jesus was saying, listen up. Paul is saying, listen to this. This is the gospel. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Here is the mission statement of God. Here is the purpose for which Jesus came into the world to save sinners. To show grace. To show mercy to God's enemies to forgive the blasphemer, to redeem the persecutor. Jesus did not come into this world to make good people better, one preacher said. He came to make dead men live. That is the beauty of the gospel, that Jesus came into the world to raise what was dead back to life. Luke 19.10, we see another mission statement. He came to seek and to save. That which was lost. Romans five eight yet another that even when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Yet another in Luke five thirty two that it's not the righteous that Jesus came to save. It's not the righteous that Jesus calls to repentance, but it's the lost he came to save. The unrighteous, he came to call to repentance. I am glad this morning to know that Jesus came for the lost. Are you glad for that this morning? You don't look very glad this morning. Are you glad that Jesus came for the lost? Because you were lost and I was lost. Are you you glad that Jesus came for the unrighteous? Are you glad that Jesus calls the unrighteous? Because if he had come for someone else, if he had come for the righteous, if he had come for the sinless, if he had come for the people that are pretty good on their own, I would be out and you would be out. But Paul says Jesus came for God's enemies. Jesus came for the unrighteous like me and like you. And Paul adds this testimony about himself there in verse 15. Of whom I am the foremost. He could have left it at Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's good enough, isn't it? But he adds, of whom I am the foremost. Some of your translations say, of whom I am chief. I am the worst one. If you don't start out with the truth about who you were apart from Christ you can never know his grace. Paul knew that. If you can't begin to admit this morning to God that you are the chief sinner, you will never know that Jesus is the chief savior. And before we begin to think that this is some sort of depressing self-hatred thing that Paul is calling us to do, Look at what the result is in verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason. This is why God did it. This is why Jesus came for me. That in me, as the chief sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul says this is not about self-hatred, self-loathing, dwelling in the past, cowering around because we know that we're sinners. No, Paul says this is reason to rejoice This is why God did what he did. This is why God sent Jesus for the chief sinner, the chief persecutor, the chief blasphemer, the chief enemy, so that God, he says, might display his perfect patience for Paul. But look at what he says, not just for Paul, but for all who would come to believe in Jesus. Paul was raised up as a testament. A trophy of God's grace for all who were to to believe in Jesus. That's me this morning. That's you this morning if you know him. Perhaps you're here today and you don't think Jesus will have you. For some of us, that's just unthinkable. But so many people struggle with this. Sinners struggle with this. I think sometimes we have this delusion that people are unbelievers and people are lost and people don't come to church and people don't want anything to do with Jesus just because they hate Jesus. It's true. They do apart from him. But this keeps people from Jesus. That we think that we are too far. We think we're too bad. We think we're too lost. We think we've done too much. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. Jesus will not have me. I need to get myself cleaned up before I come to Jesus. I need to get myself holier before I come to Jesus. We've got the gospel wrong if that's how we're thinking about it. Jesus, remember, came for the unrighteous. Jesus came for the lost. He came for the enemy so that he might one by one claim trophy after trophy after trophy for his grace. I heard a preacher say recently, That we don't get good so we can get God. We get God so that we can get good. He comes to make us holy by the blood of Jesus. Paul says, I am the chief trophy because I was actively pursuing Christians. I was actively persecuting Christ. And yet he called me. God says to you today, listen carefully, unbeliever here today. God says to you, you are not too far. You are not too bad. You are not too unrighteous that He won't or can't save you. The angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents, Jesus says in Luke 15, 7 over one sinner. All of heaven erupts in praise. God delights in his trophies of grace. Ephesians 1.6 tells us the reason why God does what he does for sinners. is So that he can show the immeasurable riches of his grace to the praise of his own glory. God loves to display what God can do. And he could do it for you today. Verse 17, Paul can contain himself no more. I can see Paul pushing back in his seat, lifting his hands to the Lord and throwing his head back. Now to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. As he begins to write down this inspired doxology that the Holy Spirit is breathing through him, he explodes in this song of praise to God. You take verse 17 out of this, it seems like it sits alone by itself. It doesn't really fit within the context of all this being said until you see it that way. That Paul breaks into his thought. He breaks into what he's saying to praise God. To say thank you to the immortal, invisible king of the ages. This is what redemption looks like. And listen, I'm kind of a quiet, introspective person myself. Laughter for that, for some reason. You don't know me. I'm just. And I would never argue that that church or worship or or your singing. or or your physical response to God in worship with lifting of hands or whatever, I'm I'm not one to mandate those things and say what should or should not happen. Okay, People respond different ways. People people feel different ways in worship. Some people uh, are reverent and, and maybe weep for joy, while others might like to shout and lift their hands. I don't know what we would do if anybody would run the aisles in here. We might think they need to go to the restroom, but people respond different ways to what God has done. And so I'm not mandating or calling for any particular sort of emotional or physical response to God. All I'm asking you to think about today is what redemption really looks like. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, we see the story of a woman of ill repute. Who has come to Jesus and has anointed his feet. Costly perfume spilled out there at the feet of Jesus. And the disciples and the religious leaders around Jesus are scandalized by two things. Number one, that this woman, with her past, with her sin, would dare come into the presence of Jesus, the Holy One of Israel. And then number two, they're scandalized by the fact that she brings this dramatic exorbitant gift to give to Jesus this costly perfume that she pours out on his feet who does she think she is and what does she think she's doing Jesus rebukes the disciples he rebukes the Pharisees he says you, you really don't get it do you Luke 7:47 this woman worships And loves much because she's been forgiven much. Now, have you been forgiven much this morning? Now, I've been forgiven much this morning. And when people are forgiven, they worship. And again, I'm not talking about a mere emotional or physical response to some song or something. But at the very least, when we sing, when we hear the good news of Jesus in song, when we pray, when we hear his word, it should at least bring some joy, a smile to our face to think this is who we are in Christ. We have been forgiven much, and so we are going to worship much. Do you know yourself to be an example of grace? Because if you know yourself to be an example of grace, you will be an example of worship. Lastly, today we see a warning of grace. Verses 18 through 20. This charge, there it is, takes us all the way back to verse 3, doesn't it? Timothy, in verse 3, this is your charge. To warn these false teachers not to do the things they're doing. And now in verse 18, we come back to what we started with. Now, Timothy, now that you understand what's at stake, the grace of God, the gospel of God, the goodness of God, the beauty and the glory of this immortal, invisible king that we serve, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Now we don't know the context or the content of what Paul means when he talks about these prophecies made about Timothy. Except that maybe when Timothy was called to come alongside of Paul, Paul uh, was used by God, maybe Silas was used by God, maybe some of the others traveling were used by God to call Timothy into ministry, that they received a revelation from God that this young man, Timothy, is going to be used of God. He should travel with you, Paul, and God is going to do great things for him and through him. And Paul says, take what you know. Take what those men said about you. Take what your mother and your grandmother taught you when they taught you the scriptures and use it, Paul says, to wage the good warfare. Warfare. We're in a war for truth. Paul says the stakes are too high. This is not just about a difference of opinion. This is not just in this false teaching category, something about what you can think what you think and you can think what what you think about Jesus and you can do your gospel and we'll do our gospel and we'll just hope it all works out in the end. Paul says, no, the stakes are too high. Eternity is in the balance. This is not about a difference of opinion. This is about the true gospel and the false gospel. This is about life and death. And he tells Timothy and he tells us now, take what you know and take this charge and wage war. I like verses 19 and 20 because Paul names some names. (laughs) Paul ain't scared to name some names. I think often in the church today, whether it's in our churches or outside our churches, we're scared to warn people about false teachers and false teaching by name. Watch out for this person. Watch out for this book. Watch out for this thing. Paul doesn't have any problem with it. Verse 20, watch out for Hymenaeus And Alexander, who, verse 19, have rejected this and made shipwreck of their faith. Paul says these are not just harmless oddballs in the church. They're a danger to themselves and they're a danger to others because they're steering people right toward the rocks and to shipwreck. Remember, they swerve. They veer away, they wander away, and they lead others to do the same. This example comes up again in 2 Timothy 2, verse 17. Two other names, but one that we remember. Paul calls out again Hymenaeus alongside of another man, Philetus. And look what he says about their teaching. We think it's harmless. We think it's just a difference of opinion. Paul says it is gangrene. It's an infection. It's a sickness. It's a cancer that is to be cut out before it brings death to the whole body. Paul warns Timothy to wage war against these false gospels and these false teachers. In love and grace and mercy and you say I don't see, you said this was a warning of grace and love and mercy, I don't don't see a whole lot of that here. Look at verse 20. I've handed them over to Satan, and again, (laughs) that doesn't sound too loving, Paul, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul's speaking here about church discipline. That these men seemingly continued in their error and continued to stir up division in the church to the point where they were warned once, they were warned twice, and they were brought before the church as Jesus instructed before being removed and treated as sinners and tax collectors. Unless you begin to say, man, that sounds really harsh, would you really do that to people? Yes, Jesus commanded it, the apostles commanded it not for the sake of just getting people out, but that our prayer for them might be what Paul prays for Hymenaeus and Alexander in verse 20, that by this they may learn not to blaspheme, so that they might repent. And Paul says in Galatians, if someone is removed and repents and they were restored, you should restore them with gentleness and love. It's a warning, but it's a warning backed by grace. Watch out, even as we pray for them, that they might come to their senses and repent. Maybe we need to be recaptured this morning by the grace and the mercy of Jesus. Maybe we need to remember the war that we're in. Maybe we need to remember the danger of the false teaching that we face in our churches, in our denominations, in our country, in our world. Maybe we need to remember this morning that our gospel is too good not to fight for. This morning, have you been knocked off your feet by the grace of Jesus? Have you been blinded by the light Of his truth. This morning have you come to a place in your life where you know. That you are the chief sinner. And that you need to be saved. And if you've not come to that point. I want you to know today that that grace can be yours. Listen this morning sinner, unbeliever person far from God listen you are not too far and you are not too lost and you are not too bad because you're the very one along with me for whom Jesus came we sang amazing grace before the sermon and uh, Matt rightly mentioned it as the uh, unofficial anthem of Baptists and I, I would concur with that Though it was written by an Anglican priest named John Newton. And surely you know the story of John Newton who wrote about God's amazing grace because he knew the amazing grace of God in his own life. Who would have called himself readily the chief sinner. Having been the captain of a slave ship. That over the course of his life as a slave ship captain, and before that, whatever else he did, took hundreds and thousands of enslaved Africans all across the Atlantic Ocean. And yet here is one to whom Jesus showed grace. Who called him out on his sin, knocked him to his feet, blinded him with the truth, and made him a minister of his gospel? And that same John Newton, who wrote about God's amazing grace, said, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner. And Christ is a great Savior. I am a great sinner. Christ is a great Savior. If you know yourself to be a great sinner this morning and you never come to Jesus as your great Savior, when we sing in a moment, I'll be here, we'll sing. If you want to begin to talk about what it means to know the grace of God and to follow Jesus in that way, come talk to me and then we'll be here after as well. If you're a believer here today, this message is not over your head. You know what this is about. And as we sing our closing song, His Mercy is More, I would challenge you to do as Paul did, to just erupt with praise and worship to our great God for what he has done for you in Christ. That you remember that you're a great sinner and you rejoice that you know a great Savior. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the amazing gift of your grace and mercy toward us in Christ who came to seek and to save that which was lost, who came to call sinners to repentance, who came to save the unrighteous just like us. God, this morning, if there are those in this congregation who, for whatever reason, have not come to an understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, I ask that you would do that today in their hearts by your Holy Spirit, that you would, as you did for Paul, strengthen them and overflow their hearts with grace Give them love, give them faith, give them repentance, even today as we pray and sing. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.